0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: So the Liberals had their party convention on the weekend and, you know, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of news out of there. Hillary Clinton showed up and a bunch of other things. And as part of the convention, they do this at every party's convention, they vote on a number of policy resolutions that the party may take on as part of its official party policy. And these may or may not go somewhere, but one of the things that came up and that really caught my eye and I think a few other people's eyes too, was under the headline, under the title of combating disinformation in Canada. And there's a bunch of whereases uh, I won't read all those, but be it resolved that the liberal party of Canada request the government explore options to hold online information services accountable for the veracity of material published on their platforms and to limit publication only to material whose sources can be traced. And to limit, let me read that again, and to limit publication only to material whose sources can be traced. Now, this, you may have noticed, came up in the midst of a scandal for the situation, whatever you want to call it, for the liberal government with the CSIS whistleblowers talking about the Chinese threats against Michael Chong, the MP. No, the people from CSIS have not been named. This is anonymous sources interesting timing here. I want to bring in Richard Brennan. He is a long-time, he was a long-time political writer for the Toronto Star at Queen's Park and Parliament Hill. Joins us now. Richard, thanks for doing this. God, how are you? I'm terrific. Although, uh, you know, every time a government decides to start nudging in more and more into what they can or should, or might want to control on the stories or writing or journalism. I always get nervous because it just, it it seems as though when you open the door a little bit, it can be pushed open a lot.
0: Well, that's, I agree a hundred percent. I, I, am of two minds here. I I can't get too excited, uh, about a resolution, but it, it indicates something else I've covered many conventions, political conventions over the years and you over the years, that some of the NDP uh, resolutions, uh, you you just wouldn't have believed them, huh. and and I think this is almost edges on that, but it certainly suggests that there's a frame of mind here that I find a bit troubling. That they're go- they're going to tell me as a reporter, which I once was for 43 years, that I would have to divulge my source to the government on a story. Uh, I don't think so. That's never going to happen in my lifetime anyway. It, it just, it's ridiculous. But it really, it sends a, a shot across the bow in a way, in an indirect way of anybody who's maybe thinking of releasing information like we, we saw from CSIS. You know, if you do that, we, we've got ways of finding out who you are. I, this will never see the light of day, I don't think. But God knows. But I I mean, I just think it would be government folly to put this resolution as ill thought as it is into practice.
1: Well, it's so interesting to me that this comes out the day before Melanie Jolie today posted on Twitter and the, the government voted on this. Uh, Canada declares the diplomat who was behind the story involving Michael Chong persona non grata. So... On the day that they are acknowledging that there is a problem with this diplomat and essentially, as I read this, saying, yeah, the story was true. We're not going to expel a Chinese diplomat if there's no veracity to the story on the day that they're saying the story that came to our attention allegedly because of an anonymous tipster. We're going to try and say no more anonymous tipsters.
0: Yeah, the, the timing is, uh, is interesting. I, I, don't think, I don't think many Canadians blame uh, the government, the federal government, for giving this uh, Chinese diplomat the boot. Not at all. And, and there's no, I, I, I haven't heard from anybody that the story or the information was incorrect. I mean, we've got, you know, a Michael Chong saying that, in fact, it was correct. And that, you know, the Chinese government was trying to influence him, trying to influence his relatives back in China. So we know that part of it's good. And we know that somebody's leaked that from ISIS or ISIS. Cecis. <laughs> Cecis. I got ISIS on the mind. Cesis. Uh, thank you. I shouldn't I get shouldn't mix those two up. And <laughs> and it just it just seems to me that uh, the, the timing's a, a bit odd. whether whether it was I know how governments like to think they're smarter than everybody else, but whether it was uh, timed accordingly, I, I I'd have my doubts. Okay, so explain
1: though. Okay, so you, you mentioned about the resolutions and at the party plat, uh, party conventions. the The reason that I bring this up because you're absolutely right, of course, that this doesn't necessarily become official party platform. This doesn't necessarily become that. But surely when the wackiest of the wacky ideas are presented, surely somebody in that convention is going to say, yeah, no, we're going to take a pass on that. To me, this is one of those ones where you, I would have expected somebody to say, no, this is a step too far.
0: But it wasn't, they voted on it. I know,
1: I know, I know. And that's what I'm saying. Even though it may not officially become party platform in the next election, the fact that it has got this far to me is concerning because obviously enough people there thought this was a good idea.
0: But I, I like, again, I've seen some, exa- I'm exaggerating here, but I, you know, some of the ones I covered with NDP conventions that, you know, basically that the cheese and made out of, you know, or the moon is made out of Swiss cheese or something like that. I mean, it, and they would vote on it, but it was, it, it was just nonsensical Let's say that, you know, that a lot of people thought this was un- nonsensical and they voted on it anyway. But it certainly sends a wrong message that this government believes that there should be at some time, they should have the ability to question people's sources. And they said online, like, Scott, your stuff goes online. Mine went online when I was a reporter. so. You know, are they expecting us to divulge our sources or it, it just, well, it's unconstitutional I, as far as I'm concerned, it, it wouldn't go anywhere. But the fact that they would even think this way, I find the more troubling aspect of it.
1: Do, I mean, the other part about this that I always think whenever someone wants to put in something that says we're going to ban something, it always seems like a good idea when you're the one in power seems far less exciting a few years later when someone else is in power do you honestly believe that the people who voted on this would like this idea if the conservatives were holding government right now and CSIS was releasing stuff on the conservatives oh
0: we would have to peel them off the ceiling uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's great when it's 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 terrible when it's you it's great when it's the other guy
0: well you know and this this what Scott, what this comes from is this comes from a government that maybe been in power too long that thinks they can just about say and do anything. Well, That's that's one of the aspects of this story. I I think if you look at it from that way, you've you've got people, and remember, this is just a party. This isn't the government. Right, right. This is the party saying this stuff. But again, where does this come from? Like, how was this initiated? Who thought this was a good idea? Yeah. It, it and, raises, and why did he get that kind of take up?
1: It raises lots of questions and, 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 and here's the other thing though, Richard, is that I do think that probably there are a fair number of people, not just in the party convention who would say, well, what's wrong with this? I think this is good. We shouldn't have this. And that, that to me is maybe even more concerning than the fact that the government would be on this. I think there is probably a chunk of the population that sees no problem with this. There's probably people listening right now who are saying, you are two journalists who have a vested interest, but the rest of us think this is really smart.
0: Well, if it, it's all well and good till it comes to your front door
1: great point uh Richard Brennan um, Toronto star former Toronto Star political writer Queen's Park Parliament Hill many 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 what do you say 43 years 43 43, yeah. 43 years uh Richard always appreciate you taking a few minutes thanks for doing this today
0: thanks guy bye bye
1: yeah you know th- th- again this kind of thing doesn't necessarily become party policy but there were enough people there and and I again I don't think this is just within the The Liberal Party. I I think that probably if you talk to a bunch of people, go look on Twitter about this or whatever else. I think there's probably a lot of people saying, yeah, we shouldn't have whistleblowers. Why should people, why should media use anonymous sources? And I can tell you that most of the time, almost all of the time, the reason, in my experience anyway, the reason media uses anonymous sources is because the person is, by giving something to the media, by tipping them off, is putting themselves or their career at risk. And if, if you cannot provide them with the anonymity, that thing, that story will never come out. So go to what is going on right now. Canada today got rid of a diplomat, seemingly acknowledging that the Story that we've been hearing about for days and days now was true. And yet, if this had never been given by a whistleblower, we would have never known about this. And it would still be going on. So it it wasn't a lie. It wasn't untrue. It was true. And now it's been dealt with, but only because something came out. The biggest example ever, the Watergate situation with Richard Nixon. Would never, ever have been known or untangled, but for Deep Throat, which was the anonymous source for Woodward and Bernstein. Take away Deep Throat, there is no Watergate scandal. Richard Nixon serves out his four years. Gerald Ford probably takes over and runs for after that. For and you know, who knows how things change. But that was because of an anonymous source. This is. This is getting into, uh, you know, anytime governments start pushing their nose more and more into wanting to control the message, you should be concerned. And if you are of the mind that says, come on, Scott, you're just, you're, you're a journalist, so you're concerned about this, but I think it's great. Just sit and think about it for a moment and then think, what if the party that I don't support is in power and they then get to decide who controls the message or they then get to decide that the stuff that might be embarrassing to them can't be leaked out because they can ban it. It's a different story. It's it's nice when you're the party in power. It's less so when you're not.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: All right. Let me bring in on a Monday evening for his usual spot. Allen cup champion, real estate mogul. Or magnate. I'm not sure. What's better, magnate or mogul? Uh, probably magnet. I'm All not right, sure mag- you can spell mogul. <laughs> um, well, I won't even say anything about the moguls. Um, Don Robertson from Dundas. A- and the leading contender for the 2023 Dundas Citizen of the Year.
2: Yeah, looking forward to
1: that. Yeah. They'll have a big banquet, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> hey, whatever happened, by the way, now that I mention it, it just popped into mind, literally, as we're speaking. Whatever happened to the downtown Dundas Walk of Fame that was talked about when Arlene Vanderbeek was councillor? Has that still got a life, or has that sort of gone oh, on to the back burner?
2: No, of course it does. Yeah, no, yeah? I don't, I don't leave, let anything die. So it's still in the works. Yeah, we took a little time off to to uh, prepare for the Allen Cup and get the get the community ready for that, and so on. And uh, I will be talking to some people tomorrow night about it. As a matter that right? of fact, yeah.
1: Okay, did not know. So that, that's, is the plan still at the corner of Market and King? Uh, th- yeah,
2: that's. Uh, In that little courtyard Yeah, right TD. Yeah. Uh, that's where Arlene Vanderbeek wanted to see it. She and I didn't probably totally agree on that, so we'll see. Uh, I did have a conversation with the new counselor about it. And um, just to inform him. Um, uh, I don't seek permission for things like that. I provide information. Um, so yeah, he, he's aware. And, um, so we'll, we'll see, I mean, we'll get things rolling before cactus festival, maybe.
1: They'll be good. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm glad to hear that's still going on cause yeah. I kind of had a thought that when the election happened, maybe these things die, but apparently not. So that's it, good. Well, it wasn't
2: her idea. No, no. Although Arlene was very supportive.
1: Yes. I knew she was
2: and I, you know. So. And that makes my life a lot easier. She's no longer the counselor, but the dream didn't die.
1: Okay. Well that's good. Well, the dream, uh, thank you for the segue. The dream may be dying for that team just up the highway that wears blue and white. I, I Don, I cannot, we were talking about it earlier in the show. I It's almost like someone writes the script secretly, like a WWE storyline with the Leafs to continually find a way to make it the most painful possible outcome for Leaf fans. I mean, the term long-suffering, I don't know. Now the Chicago Cubs have won a World Series. I truly don't know if there is any other group that can apply the term long-suffering like Leaf fans can Thundas
2: Real McCoy head coach Ron Bernanke likes to tell the story that when Jerry McNamara, the general manager, released him in 1987, I believe it was. That was the reason? That's the curse? Bernie looked across the table and said, you will now never win a Stanley (laughs) Cup again. (laughs) I think his uh, tongue was firmly in his cheek, and he was probably thinking and, and not saying it out loud. But that's the story, and he stuck with it. And he's a big Leaf fan. So I don't think he knows how to undo the curse. Yeah. And I think all injuries now for the Toronto Maple Leafs are self-inflicted.
1: Oh yeah. And, and I mean, speaking of curses, uh, my colleague, Steve Milton at The Spectator, he is a firm believer that it's the curse of the big M. He believes when they traded Frank Mahovlich, that was the curse that will not be unbroken. So. And,
2: and Mahavlich come back and played in Toronto after he got traded to Detroit for the Toros.
1: He did. Yeah. No, he absolutely did. And uh, there's a story in there one day that I'll tell you, but uh, we'll save that one for another day. But no, I, I, it is. I think any Leaf fans who had any optimism, and they a lot, and they had a lot of reason, I think, too, after the first round. Probably just feel like they've taken. Remember when you were a kid playing road hockey? and you were running with your stick in front of you and you suddenly hit a chunk of ice and the knob of the stick shot back into a delicate region, mm-hmm. that's what I think it probably feels like for every Leaf fan right now based on what's happened in the last week.
2: My voice just deepened about two years ago from the last one.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, things just descended.
2: <laughs> um, you know it's funny, uh, Mike Babcock um, got dumped on for saying, I need heavier players. And you think back that they didn't have room for Zach Hyman. How good would Zach Hyman look with the Toronto Maple Leafs today versus William Nylander, who I said to Suze last night when I was partaking in the game, and I said, he doesn't even sweat.
1: He doesn't, although honestly of the four that make all the money on that team, well riley i guess also but but the four forwards Nylander has been the best in this series which is which is praised Isn't that by, bad? well that it's 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 not exactly the greatest praise i mean the bar's not very high for that praise uh it, it is it is not so here here's the thing you've been around hockey for a long time at all different levels do you believe that guys are big time players and can never change. They either can absorb and excel in big moments, or do you believe that can be taught? Can, can the guys like we watched yesterday, Matthews and Marner and Tavares pretty much just absolutely invisible, absolutely invisible at the biggest moment, and there is six or seven years of track now mm. to show that they have done this consistently. Can someone. Teach them that, or is that just who they are and that's what you're going to have to live with?
2: I would say in almost all cases, that's what they are and that's what you have to live with. And quite frankly, that's okay. But your core four or five can't all be the same type of player. It doesn't mean that Marner, Matthews, Nylander, and Tavares can't play on championship teams and contribute. But as a collective group, they look to have zero chance of making that happen because none of them have thrown an effective body check since the playoffs started. I'm not sure Matthews knows how to hit anybody, probably because he's been such, and all of them, such an elite player for so long, it's never had to have been part of his repertoire. He could just do whatever he wanted based on skill. And look at he is one of the most skilled athletes in the National Hockey League. But so is Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl, And they have eight goals in two, uh, in two games. And those four guys have no goals in three games. And I have seen players mature and accept the responsibility of paying the price to make a play. Change a little bit. But they need to be surrounded by a group that all pay the price, and then you stick out like a sore thumb. So they may not like it, but they'll do it. But there's nobody leading that charge. And, you know, you hear so many people like, I've been thinking about the analogy, the National Hockey League is so fast, so skilled, that when you're out there, you have about an inch and a half room to work until the playoffs come. And Marner can live in a world where he has an inch and a half to work. He's that skilled. But they've narrowed that down to about a quarter of an inch on him, and he hasn't got time to turn around. And everybody said, well, he's not that big. He's not that strong. And I, I, looked, I looked at a couple of guys today and said, neither was Doug Gilmore. And they called him killer. Mm-hmm. Like, Gilmore, assuredly, is no bigger than uh, Marner is.
1: Yeah, maybe a little thicker, but basically the same guy.
2: Well, this, Same
1: size, yes, give or take. Just
2: raw bone kid, right? Yeah. But they had Domi around and they had Wendell Clark around. Wendell Clark wasn't a big guy, but he'd run through the end of the rink to score a goal. Yep. They don't have anybody going through anybody. They have too many guys taking the easy route, and they don't compete. So when we look at our roster, because I think it's a, it seems to be a formula that's rather effective for us, you, you look at who performs well in the playoffs – and you try and analyze the guy when you do your final roster and say, will he pay the ultimate price? Like, can we count on him? And to me, Toronto don't do that. They don't look at how good can he be during the playoffs versus the regular season. Like Claude Lemieux, who was in Colorado and everywhere else, everybody absolutely hated him, and every general manager in the league says, I want that idiot on my team.
1: Well, back in 2014, when you won your previous Allen Cup, uh, one of the guys who was playing for you was Jay McKee, who's now the coach of the Bulldogs. And I remember coming out to watch him when he showed up, and he was just out of the NHL then by a year or two. I mean, he was still basically an NHL player playing for no money now. And I remember in probably his first game, I don't know, maybe his second game when I saw him, he stopped a slap shot from about 20 feet away with his collarbone. And after I was talking to him, and I was like, "Why are you doing this? Like, honestly, why are you doing this? You're not being paid five million dollars a year anymore." Well, he was. And oh yeah. And uh, and it's just what it's just that's the way he played. That's that was him. That was him. And I just you know I, I I will see guys on the Leafs block shots. I don't think that's the issue. They'll block shots, but then you know the game-winning goal last night. Uh, what's his name, skates around the entire Leaf team. That's on Sam the Reinhardt. Sam Reinhardt doesn't get touched. I mean, no. it looked like men's league. It 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 did. And, and they, you can't tell me that if that had been Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner, that somebody on Florida would not have laid a body on them.
2: Well, and the other thing you have to think about is in overtime, and the Leafs had not had a power play so my psyche if i'm running the bench is going you know what they we've they've had two power plays we haven't had any we likely can't take a penalty in overtime like if you punch a guy in the face you're not going to get a penalty for it if you trip a guy in a breakaway and everybody in the world sees it you're in big trouble but you're not going to get an interference call you're not going to get a roughing call we can do whatever we want. They still didn't touch anybody, and they ice they ice the puck three times in ninety seconds. That's a great strategy to win an overtime in a must-win game. I mean, just the whole thing is just dysfunctional. But anyway, back to Jay McKee. Afterward, like we we used to have a stats guy, Mike Dyer, may he rest in peace. We won that Allen Cup for him, and uh, he was with us since when we started. Um, we were sitting around having tea after the game and looked at the stats. McKee blocked more shots in his first game with us than the rest of the team combined. Oh, I'm sure. So we talked to him and said, I said, what are you doing? He's And he led the NHL and blocked shots on more than one occasion, on more than one season. That's what he did. And he said, yeah, but that's how I play.
1: Yeah, that like, was just I'm him.
2: I'm not going from one end to the other and toe-dragging anybody. That's how I play, and when Rick Vive played for us, he went to the front of the net in senior hockey, and I asked him the same question. He said, well, but that's what I do. So they don't change. Just because they're not getting paid, they don't change how they play the game. Those guys played to win. McKee played to win. The Leafs need more guys will play to win, and what they should do is whoever gets Connor Bedard tonight, and you've asked me this question before, I would trade them William Nylander and, and Mitch Marner for Bedard.
1: No, that would and be then say, we're
2: three or four years away, but this group can't do it. And then see what you can get because Marner's contract's coming up that he is no trade locks in. Marner or uh, Nylander has a verbal deal from the general manager that he wouldn't trade him. Well, that might not matter in about three weeks. Yep. Or three
1: days. Or three days. Would you right now, and here, here's a crazy question. And I mean, it is a crazy question, and it, I, I feel almost weird asking it because the Seattle Kraken have been in the NHL for less than two full seasons right now. They're an expansion team still. Except they have already shown an ability to do better in the playoffs than the Leafs. If, if you could do this, and would you trade the entire Maple Leafs roster for the entire Seattle Kraken no-name roster? I'm not
2: convinced I can tell you one player on the Seattle Kraken and...
1: Jordan Eberle, I could tell you. And the goalie who was with Colorado last year, who, of course, I can't even think of his name, but the guy who won the Stanley Cup for them. But basically, you're right. That's my point. The Leafs are star-studded. Seattle is a bunch of no-names, but if you were... If they called up and they said to... Kyle Dubas, I tell you what, at the end of this season we will flip our entire roster. Everybody on both sides is going. Would you do it? If I'm Kyle Dubas, I would. Would you? Because
2: it's his only chance. Unless they win this series, if they lose in four or if they lose in five, all that goodwill he packaged up after seven or nine years as general manager all that
1: goodwill he regained will be gone, and he is in big trouble. He, he, I would not file, fire Kyle Dubas if I was the ownership of the Leafs. He's about the only guy I wouldn't fire. Because I think that if you look at what Dubas has done, and you can say, well, ultimately he built the team, so it's his responsibility. He has brought in guys who they needed. He has filled guests. Ultimately, he can't. I don't think you can hold him responsible for your biggest stars being no shows and not committing and not engaging. I, I think Kyle Dubas has done a terrific job. He's brought in stars, he's brought in role players, he's done everything he's had to do, except, except maybe a goalie, but even his goalie has been fine. He brought Matt
2: Murray in to win him a Stanley Cup, and they won't even dress him, and apparently he's healthy.
1: Yeah, but, you know, Samsonoff has made that unnecessary because Samsonoff's been really good. And Wall was good yesterday in relief, too. I, I, I don't have a problem with what Kyle Dubas has done. It's I do. I don't think he's done the job.
2: Okay. I, I, I don't agree, and I don't agree because mostly because of what we talked about earlier. There is zero sandpaper on that team. Like there's, I mean, in the right spots. Your third and fourth line have got some guys I mean, you can make an
1: argument that Wayne Simmons should be in the lineup. I don't think he could keep up in this series. That's the problem. I think that's why they don't have him in, because I don't think he can I, keep up at this point.
2: I agree, but he will bring a dimension that they don't seem to have. Bunting's all right. Kerfoot's all right. But they, they you you need heavy guys, and I hate that term, but you need gritty guys like Hyman To play with Marner and Matthews to give them some room.
1: Well, the other thing I don't know why they didn't do yesterday, and I expect they will because they're desperate now. They're really desperate now. I don't know why they haven't moved Riley up to the second line, moved Tavares to the wing like when they first got Riley and that line looked really good. The three line thing, spreading it out, you now almost have to load up and just play the snot out of these guys and hope that they do something. And if you're going with 11 forwards anyway, it's really only three and a half lines. Well, you're talking about going with six. So you basically go with three lines. Yep. And just you got a couple extra guys you can plug in here and there. What's what are you saving it for now? But didn't Riley win a Lady Bing? He's not Ryan. Oh Ryan or O'Reilly. 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 I'm talking about O'Reilly, not Riley. Yeah, O'Reilly. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I, you know what, I, I would just. They move. need they need
2: some compete. Yes, they lack compete. They lose too many one on ones. They lose too many pucks inside their blue line, thinking about making a play. They 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 played with no desperation and not enough compete. There is no way those four guys should be goalless. Maybe maybe
1: one of them should have not have scored a goal. You know what's hurting them right now? Their reputation. It would be one thing if they were goalless. And they've, you know, Matthews has hit a few goalposts and stuff. It'll be one thing to, for them to be goalless. But when you're looking a few thousand kilometers west of us and their two top guys, McDavid and Dreisaitl, are absolutely going off. well like Eight that, goals in two games? Yeah, but even if they had four goals in two games or three goals in two games between the two of them, the fact that your four are doing nothing, and those two are dominating, it's a terrible look by comparison. If, if McDavid and Dreisaitl were not scoring right now, you could maybe, maybe, if you're the Leafs guys, say, look, it's just the playoffs. It's the way things go. You Stars don't have the room to do what stars do. But when you have that comparison hanging out there, it looks terrible by comparison. What makes
2: it look less terrible right now if the Leafs are up 2-1? Like, if, if the sure. third and fourth line had chipped in a bit more, and they're apparently the ones doing the scoring, right? But had they have been able to, I mean, they've lost two games by one, they've lost an overtime in the game before 3 2. Had they have won both those games, and uh, everybody would be talking and writing about, you know, they're up 2 1, and the big guys haven't even started yet. But now they're down 3 nothing and the big guys all got flat tires.
1: And everybody's ready to run them out of town. Well, this is so we got to take a break here. This is this is I think this is where it is right now is that they have two options. They either come back all the way back and win this thing, become the fifth team ever only in NHL history to come back from three nothing down.
2: Forty two leaps did.
1: Yeah, it's been a few years. I remember. Um, And they either come back and they completely rewrite everything, or. All those guys, those top four, all of their reputations are shattered. I I, I don't care if Austin Matthews gets traded and goes to another team and is with a bunch of guys and wins a Stanley Cup down the road. Seven years or whatever, six years, seven years he's been in Toronto, him and Marner, and they have not been able to win more than one playoff series. And in that playoff series, they won. They were the better team in one game. Yeah. You, you. I, I think their reputations are set in stone at this point. That they are soft, regular season players who don't rise to the occasion.
2: Again, you can mix them in if you have a couple high and everything else to do some of the heavy lifting. Oh,
1: sure, they can be Larry Murphy. They Bec- can go to the Red Wings, and win yeah. a couple of cups. Because the term, um, if you can hide them,
2: that's very and let them ex- give them an opportunity to excel. But they're saying, and they're right, uh, Matthews hasn't hit anybody. Well, that's not what he does, and he's never hit anybody, to your point. He's not going to turn into uh, Kachuk all of a sudden. He's just not going to play that way. But if he's surrounded with a bunch of guys that will let him do what he does best, then that'll be fine.
1: And, Don, when we were chatting in the last, and I meant to come back to this, but you had said about the Leafs in overtime that the Leafs had not had a power play and uh, Florida had had two, so the Leafs were not going to get a call against them in all likelihood. I wanna ask about that because I hear this all the time when at the start of this year in the first game of the series, Paul Maurice at the end of the game held up the coach of Florida on his chest, how many penalties his team had had and how many penalties the Leafs had had. And there's almost this suggestion that at the end of the game, it should balance out. I've never understood that concept. If one team plays a dirtier brand of hockey or commits more infractions, why should they not have more penalties? Why should refs try to balance it out? Why should we expect that somehow it should be balanced out? If the Leafs had taken two penalties and Florida hadn't committed an infraction and the Leafs commit not an, an infraction, why should they not have a third penalty? Well, they should have a third penalty. But uh, they never do. Your point is they don't do that. My
2: point was overtime. Florida, Florida, likely uh, we're going to get away with a lot more than regu- regulation time as well, uh, and overtime when it's tied really starts with five minutes slept in the third period because
1: it's like overtime. The referees don't want to determine the outcome of the game, so if it's I always hear that, and yet when you don't call a penalty, that's a penalty. You're determining the outcome of the game.
2: Well, you, you have a, you have an impact on it. There's a little question about that. I think Maurice's comments would be, as have mine been from the bench, is that the penalties are five to one. Now, I don't expect them if we're doing things or or if Florida were doing things naughty that they shouldn't be, and there should have been penalties, that's okay. But when it starts going four to one, five to one, six to two, You start saying, you know what, you have to be a little bit respectful here of how this is being played, and they're not all blatant. And where coaches get upset is if it's a scrum in the corner and you slap me in the mouth and get two for roughing, and it happens down on our end and it's a push and it's very similar, you don't get a call, and the penalties are four to one, you're going. It was damn near the same call, and you decided not to make it. Are you trying to manage this game, or do you want to continue to referee it? And it's a head game, too. I mean, Maurice wasn't up on the bench yelling and screaming, but he did get caught showing it's 4-1. Yeah. to one. He didn't know that would be on TV. He didn't care because he's focused on the referee letting him know, you may not be keeping track, but I am.
1: So if they do something similar to what we did, you should call it. But this, this to me, the, the prime example of where this stuff happens seemingly all the time is you get into something around the net, and some player on some team grabs another guy in a headlock or pulls him down or whatever else, or gives him a punch, and the ref sends both guys off. And you go, well, wait a second, the one guy, the only infraction was slamming his chin into the other guy's fist. Why, why is he getting a pen? And it's because, well, we can't just give one guy a penalty. And it seems as though often, and hockey hockey seems the only sport that I can recall. In football, there are lots of games in football where one team ends up with 11 penalty flags and one end team ends up with two. Nobody in football says, look at the difference. If they do, they're pointing to their own idiocy by taking all those penalties. In football, it's often an imbalanced penalty grade. In basketball, you'll often see free throw numbers that are way different. In hockey, somehow we've decided that at the end of the game, penalties should be pretty close or the refs have done something wrong.
2: Well, that's that's based on the assumption um, that what you're looking at is the fastest game on the planet other than the Kentucky Derby and horse racing. Um, and it should end up being fairly equal. What they do call consistently, I mean, this is what I taught at a young age, you always call scoring champion or scoring chances, chances and injuries. For guys st- to high sticks a guy in the face, but, I mean, I've – I had a guy come up in a junior B playoff game and I made the call very similar to what you did because it was a tight game. One guy kind of slapped a guy and the other guy kind of looked at him wrong. And so I gave him both two and the guy that took one in the app, the captain come up and said, what was that for? I said, receiving. Mm, He said, that's what you're calling it? And I said, they both got a penalty. Okay, my coach says, you better fix this. So at the end of the game, nobody was mad at me. I mean, ultimately it comes out in the wash was it a
1: cop-out? Ah, maybe it, a bit. It's just that, he, he, it, again, going back to the point you made about the two penalties the Leafs had had, there was a, a discussion that was on the air in the first game that because of the the penalty difference, that it didn't matter what Florida did, they were not going to get the next penalty. That You would almost have to do a Marquis de Sade swing with your stick and decapitate a guy to get a penalty. They could do anything, and because of the penalty distinction difference, they were not going to get a penalty. And the Leafs, if there was another penalty that was going to be called, it was going to be on the Leafs. They had to be careful. That doesn't make sense to me. If, if, if Again, if someone has committed five infractions and I've committed one, it shouldn't matter because you committed those five infractions and I committed one. Whoever commits the next one, fair or square, should get it. But that's not how it works often.
2: I said twice d- during two games in the Allen Cup when we'd had two power plays, I said, boys, I don't know what you're going to do out there, but we're getting the next one. Yeah. So don't do anything. And we didn't
1: because we didn't do anything. But you knew that was the likelihood that that's how it was going to work. That I, doesn't seem right. And and uh, Paul
2: Maurice got his guys a free pass by letting them know it's 4-1. to Yeah. So the guys on TV were right. And is that right? No. But if there had been a scoring chance, if Marner had got in on a breakaway and had his hand hooked off his stick so he couldn't shoot the puck, Florida would have got the next penalty. But what they weren't going to get was the next one for a face wash, right? I mean, they were not going to lose that battle. And coaches, uh, I mean, the way we look at it is, I, you know, if, if a guy does something and it's a penalty, it better be a penalty both ways. So everything in my mind is, that's called is a penalty. It's what they decide not to call is what you judge the guy on. And if they've decided that when you face wash me, that's two minutes, but if I do it back to you and it's not, then everybody's going, what's the standard and what the hell's going on?
1: Don, we have seen already in the last few months uh, the first or second day of the Major League Baseball season, we saw a fan get into it physically with a a player and vice versa. Um, This weekend we saw... Nikola uh, Jokic from uh, the D- Denver Nuggets get into a bit of a I don't want to say a pushing match with the Phoenix Suns owner because the Phoenix Suns owner did the greatest flop. He should have been on the court taking a charge. I mean, he 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 went down like he was playing soccer in the World Cup. Um nonetheless, it was contact and there was involvement with fans. W- where should the line be? Like should the uh, ultimately you would say or or you would probably want to say players should never have any interaction physically with fans. And I get that. That's the, that's the utopian. That's the perfect view. But if fans are getting into the player's grill and doing something to players, should players have to simply walk away and take it and never do anything? Or should they be allowed to do something?
2: Well, two things I think about,
1: um, first of all, how and why
2: are the fans getting close enough to interact with the players. So that's probably a sec- Well, basketball, it's built that way. A security thing, yeah. right? And you would hope that the fans and so on have enough self-control. They're not. But let me ask you this question. You get a fan that's absolutely livid, and he gets close enough to interact, and he pushes a player, and he spits in his face. Mm-hmm. I would say at that point that the uh, player has the right to kick the and snot out of that player. So I think the circumstances would – I mean, sure, they should be controlled and everything else. If somebody spits in, in my face and pushes me, then I – well, at my age, I'd probably get beat up, but it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. But – You know, it depends on the circumstances and what's going on. Just if a fan interacts and pushes a guy or slaps him or something like that, sure, the players have to take the high road. It just depends on how degrading it is and how the involvement is. But the home team, because generally it's going to be a home team fan versus a visiting team fan, you would presume that would be the the situation, they have to make sure that the players from the other team aren't in that position. But if it does happen, then... But you
1: even have one with Masai Ujiri and a security guard after the Raptors won where he got into it. I mean, where the security guard then claimed that he had life-altering injuries or something. I can't even remember what the story was. but He, uh, he was looking for a payday. Well, of course. But he, thats is that not the case with all of these? That if you do anything, you're going to end up in a lawsuit? If you, Dennis Rodman, when he kicked the cameraman in the groin. You know, you're going to end up in a lawsuit if you do this. That, to me, is why. I agree with you that at a certain point, I get why the players do this. I get why they lose their cool. But if you're being paid the kind of money that every single NBA player makes, to me, I don't care what they say. I don't care what derogatory terminology, what offensive language, you turn around and you walk away. That almost that payday, that paycheck is part of the payment is you're going to deal with some crap. Yep. I,
2: I don't disagree with that at all, but the example... And that doesn't,
1: that doesn't defend the fan or excuse the fan's behavior. The, no. the arena should kick that fan out and ban them and everything else. I'm not saying it's free-for-all, but if if I'm being paid $12 million or $20 million or $40 million a year, which some of these guys are, and someone calls me a name, or even someone grabs my shirt and tries to pull whatever... Part of that forty million dollars is hazard pay that I'm just going to turn the other cheek and walk away.
2: Yep, I agree, and and I think most uh, athletes are conditioned that way, that they understand that the fans are emotional and everything else, and it gets. Um, so under those circumstances, I think that for most, for the most part, that's what happens. The example I say, cited you to start the conversation is a little over the top, but not impossible. So there is there is a line that if the fans cross and get physical and spit in the guy's face, then I think the gloves come off. I mean, I think at that point in time, uh, you have to do some explaining to Lucy, but you're kind of get one free swing, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be sued and everything else, but I think for the name calling and everything else, and I'm sure, and I've never sat courtside at an NBA game, but I'm sure that there are some fans that are very good at heckling. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure there are some. Well, I
1: know there are. Yeah. I know there
2: are. And I'm sure that there are some players that are equally artistic at chirping back. And that would be worth the price of admission. But that's generally
1: where it stops. The, the one exception that I would make, and again, I, I, I still wouldn't go for it, if, if the player believes or has reason to believe, reasonable reason to believe that his or her or any of their teammates' safety is at risk, I'm okay with them taking action. And when you've seen people run onto a football field and you see the guy, a player just come and spear tackle the, the person or, you know, if you've seen, you know, I mean, look, we saw what happened years ago to Monica Sellish, the tennis player, where she was stabbed in the back. If she was playing doubles that day, for example, she wasn't, but if she was playing doubles and your doubles partner sees someone running towards you, towards your partner, and they clothesline that person and knock them down and knock them out cold, I'm okay with that because they have reason, reasonable concern for their personal safety. And and there have been others that, that, you know, we can say they had good reason to have concerns, but it's, if it's just a comment or if it's just a little shove or something the person gives you, it's... Uh,
2: you got to take that with the pay scale. The other one that that would get testy, and I, I've i seen it in hockey games, where somebody's girlfriend or wife is involved and that never ends particularly well either. And in a basketball situation, if somebody's couple of wives are sitting there with their kids and somebody gets on them real bad, you know, that can drive a guy A little around the bend,
1: but they generally don't put themselves in those positions, so it won't happen. But again, I think even not, not to, not to excuse the idiot fans, but the wife or the girlfriend is also collecting the paycheck in a manner of speaking that we're talking about. And you're going to, to me, you have to live with some of it the verbal abuse, regardless of how nasty it is and let the arena take care of it. However, if somebody was to physically go after the wife or girlfriend or child, different story, different story entirely. But I don't know, I just, it's it's been, there's been a number of them all of a sudden and there's almost a, in some corners, there seems to be a sense that, well, you know, if the fans say, say the wrong thing and look, it, where, where it gets into a really interesting, tricky area unquestionably is if a fan, for example, call the player the N word, yep. you know, I, I, I'm not there. I don't understand, but I could get how somebody could lose their mind, but I still think you just can't, unless it's your personal physical safety, you just can't do it. And, but we, we, you know, we live on a more of a hair trigger well, I was going to say situation now.
2: You look at and I uh, I'm older and I look at our general state of society in Canada and United States and I will tell you it there's far less to be proud of now than there was 30 years ago. So the fans to a certain extent take on the face of society. Uh, people who go to basketball games and hockey games and and, uh, baseball games are not just uh, an elite and select few. I mean, broad cross-section of our society. And sometimes I'm not all that proud to be a human being when I flip on the news and see what goes on. So there'd be no expectation that sports would be immune to that.
1: Don Robertson, thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Scott. It was enjoyable.